Welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Sharbini, and I'm here with my co-host, Simon. Hello. All right, and we have a special guest today. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Go ahead. I'm Nader Hashimi, uh, Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver. All right, well, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate your time here. Uh, we are here in a conference room inside of DU at, what, what's, is this? what's this building? This is the new C-Complex, which is the new expensive building attached to the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Nice. And Katya is not with us today. Uh, she's not uh, feeling well, and hopefully she'll join us uh, for the next episode. So you're the director for the Center of the Middle East Studies and professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the Corbell School of International Studies, correct? Correct. All right. And you've written a few books, and you've, you have a lot of history and knowledge on sort of the Middle East and the politics and the way that things work over there, correct? That's my life. That's your life. Nice. Uh, well, we wanted to sort of talk to you today about what sort of things you discuss at school, your background here, uh, where you got your knowledge for what, what you do. Well, I'm the child of immigrant parents from the Middle East. I was born and raised in Canada. My upbringing in Canada was deeply shaped by the turmoil in the Middle East. My parents were deeply connected to the political struggles and uh, frustrations and anxieties that existed within the region, particularly in Iran, where my parents are from, but deeply connected to broader struggles and tensions between the Middle East and the West. I mean, two seminal, seminal events that shaped my upbringing. Number one, the, the Iranian Revolution in 1979, for which my father was um, a very strong supporter of, and in fact moved our family back to Iran right after the revolution. So I spent some of my formative years in Iran in the early days of the revolution, but also more broadly living in Canada, the Israel-Palestine conflict and the differing perceptions and understandings of that conflict that uh, people from the Middle East had versus its interpretation and analysis in the West. So those were two sort of events that, you know, broadly shaped my upbringing. And it's really that background that, 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 that led to my, my PhD dissertation. I wanted to write a dissertation on questions that were foundational to the problems of political development in the Middle East. And so I ended up writing a, a doctoral dissertation on the broad question of the relationship between religion and secularism and democracy in Muslim-majority societies. And that led to my career trajectory that brought me to Denver because there was a position that opened up in 2006 looking for someone with, with that specific expertise. And I applied, and long story short, I got the position, and I've been here for the last 10 years, and I've been very happy here. Uh, we're here to talk about sort of what's going on in Iran, the connection between here in the U.S., the rest of the world, things like that. Can you sort of give us a background of where you think we started at to get to the point where we're at now? Well, we're, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that we're on the, the edge of war. Um, I would be very surprised if between now and the next presidential election there's not some sort of military conflict or, uh, between the United States and Iran. But how we got to this point, I think the key um, event that shaped this current moment of crisis was Donald Trump's declaration in May of 2018 to pull the United States out of the Iran nuclear agreement. 
which was an agreement that was not just signed between the United States and Iran, but it was signed um, and endorsed by a UN Security Council resolution, which meant it had the status of international law. And it was supported by that agreement, that nuclear agreement, was supported by almost the entirety of the um, community of nations, with, with a few minor exceptions. President Obama's senior foreign policy achievement, it was widely viewed around the world as um, a major step forward in terms of advancing international peace and security. It was only controversial in the United States among um, the Republican Party. But everywhere else in the world, it was pretty much a, uh, a slam dunk in the sense that most people thought that it was you know, a very good deal. And Donald Trump, uh, we now know, I think, pulled the United States out of the deal, not because he actually read the deal. In fact, I'm almost convinced that he has not read the deal. Yeah, um, I mean, he doesn't yeah. read, right? So <laughs> yeah. we know that. But you can tell when he talks about the deal, there's a huge disconnect, like most things that he says between, you know, the image and reality. But I think we now know, because there's quite a bit of uh, evidence to suggest that he pulled the United States out of the deal, largely because President Obama had his name on it. It was just an attempt by him to undermine what President Obama had accomplished. And he's pursued a series of policies informed by a number of close, hawkish advisors mm -hmm. that have, I think, a different view than President Trump has with respect to how to deal with Iran. And then also backed by a few um, players, uh, countries in the Middle East, that have a similarly hawkish view that people like John Bolton have who are, you know, in the White House. And I think that's, that's really the background context. It's that particular event. It would be inconceivable for us to think that we would be at this moment of crisis with oil tankers being attacked and, you know, drones being shot down and, and, and threats of, you know, missiles being fired, that we would be at this moment of crisis had the president been in the White House or had the nuclear agreement, you know, remained in place. I mean, that's the key event that, that set forth a series of events that led to escalation and mutual sort of tit-for-tat responses that brought us to this moment of crisis. Nader, if you were talking to President Trump right now, can you explain the deal in a language that might be understandable to him? I would say, well, yeah, the deal is not uh, difficult to fathom. Iran uh, agreed to roll back its nuclear program to give up any potential pathway that it could have to uh, obtain a nuclear weapon to put its nuclear program under um, strict international supervision in exchange for sanction relief. That was broadly the quid pro quo, that Iran would have to agree to make these fundamental changes. And, you know, if you look at uh, the statements and the analysis of people who are arms control experts, they consider this deal to be one of the most comprehensive arms control agreements in the world that can significantly uh, contains and restrains Iran's nuclear program. And everyone uh, who studied the matter admits, even Trump's own advisors, that Iran was adhering to the agreement. Trump thought that wasn't good enough and has now decided to pursue a much more harsher policy of called maximum pressure crippling sanctions to try and get a different agreement. That's Trump's position. I think Trump is really motivated by my view, just the grandeur and the media attention that would uh, go his way if he got a nuclear agreement. I think his closest foreign policy advisors have, I think, much more ambitious goals in terms of regime change, hoping that that would then lead to a transformed Middle East. Uh, the one issue that keeps coming up is this theme of, well, the agreement was fundamentally flawed because it didn't deal with Iran's regional behavior of intervention in Iraq, Syria, and other places. But everyone, you know, acknowledges that the, the, the nuclear agreement that Obama pursued was not about containing Iran's regional behavior. It was about containing its nuclear program.
and that it would be much better to have a denuclearized Iran around in the region rather than a nuclear uh, Iran with nuclear potential still intervening. And so this is, this is part of the, I think, the back and forth debate over this agreement that still shapes the uh, conversation here in the United States. So what could be done by um, policymakers, by people who can have a say in this process to lead Trump to do the right thing on this issue in a way where his ego is also stoked. Well, and I want to add on to that. Uh, even in the current climate of Iran having now taken two British ships, and how will the influence around the world help to push Trump in a direction that would make this where we don't have a war? Um, my, my own view is that it's a complete waste of time to try and convince Trump of uh, a better course of action. I think he's committed to this course of action. I think he really doesn't have a strategy in terms of where this is going to lead. I mean, his strategy is maximum pressure, crippling sanctions, crush the Iranian economy, hoping that Iran will capitulate. I think that's not going to happen for reasons that we can talk about. But I think the um, better course of action for those people who want to prevent war is to try and, I think, support those voices in Congress that are trying to put constraints on the president's ability to, to launch a war or start a war with Iran, and then to, I think, really invest in this is for those people who want to pre prevent a war and, and I think reorient U.S. foreign policy in a more constructive direction to get involved in some political campaign in 2020 that can elect a president that can, I think, articulate a better U.S. foreign policy. But I don't think Trump or Bolton or anyone who has influence right now can really be, can have their minds changed over the current course of action. You know, what, 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 American, what America's allies do in the region I think is also important. Um, it was encouraging to see that the British response to the seizure of these oil tankers was to try and de-escalate. They could have raised the ante and sort of threatened military action, but there, I think, uh, uh, there are cooler heads that prevail in Europe in contrast to what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now. So in that sense, there's a little bit of hope that um, perhaps um, this, this, this potential war can be averted. At some point, the U.S. and Iran were allies. So what got us to this point? Uh, you're right. The U.S. and Iran were allies, um, and but it was an alliance that was an alliance not between the United States and the people of Iran. It was an alliance between the United States and the longstanding dictator of Iran. And that was precisely the problem. I mean, the key moment, the key event that shaped I think where we are today with Iran was a series of events that took place in the late 1940s and early 1950s in Iran, where there was an emerging uh, democratic moment and a struggle for full political independence on behalf of Iranian nationalists who wanted to obtain full control over their natural resources. And the key point of contention was the question of oil. Oil in Iran was um, under the control of the British Petroleum uh, company, and they were reaping most of the profits. And there was this nationalist moment in Iran that overlapped with the broader struggle for decolonization and political independence across the developing world. This is the late 1940s, early 1950s. And in the case of Iran, this struggle manifested itself over the question of oil nationalization and the struggle with Brit the British Petroleum Company and the British government. Long story short, in 1953, the United States organizes a well a coup d'etat that has been acknowledged and for which there is massive documentation and actually for which the United States government apologized for to Iran in the year 2000. Um, in 1953, a coup d'etat takes place and the, the, the long-standing, I mean, at that time, the young sort of monarch who had fled the country during this moment of democratization is brought back to Iran 
installed as the new king and strongly supported by the United States and the West. Uh, and he ruled Iran for the next 25 years as basically a brutal dictator, repressive human rights record, you know, um, massive corruption. Sort of, you know, he was sort of like other Middle East dictators that the United States and the West is very friendly with today across the region. He was sort of our man in the, in the Middle East. And his corrupt political rule led to a revolution in 1979. And that revolution was very much predicated against the backdrop of this history of Western intervention and imperialism in Iran that goes back to the 19th century. The most recent phase was this uh, period of 1953 that, was, that, that we're talking about. And it's as a direct result of American support for the the monarchy, this, the American role in subverting Iran's um, pro-democracy movement in the 1950s, and strong American support for the dictatorship of the Pahlavi monarchy that set the stage for the 1979 revolution. You cannot understand the 79 revolution unless you understand what happened in 1953. That's absolutely the, um, the key uh, event. And so from uh, 1979 moving forward, the revolution was based on a particular animosity and a legitimate frustration at past U.S. policy toward Iran. And the people who win the post-revolutionary power struggle are deeply shaped by that particular historical experience. And they come to power, and of course they seize power, and they crush all dissenting voices, and they create effectively an authoritarian clerical regime that remains in power and that continues to cynically manipulate and deliberately, deliberately distort Iranian history for the sake of retaining power. So what we're seeing right now in Iran, if you follow the internal debate, you know, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Supreme Leader, these hardline, you know, factions continuously, the very sinister and, you know, interventionary role that the United States has played in the region, not just today with respect to sanctions, but they make a case that this is ongoing sort of uh, forms of Western intervention that the United States can't be trusted. One of the things that happened in the lead up to the nuclear agreement in 2015 was that the Supreme Leader and hardline forces kept telling the Iranian people, we can't trust the United States. The United States has abused us and humiliated us in the past. They're going to sign an agreement, but they're not going to live up to the terms of the agreement. And sadly, that's exactly what happened. So those people within Iran who supported the nuclear agreement, who supported engagement with the West, who supported greater political opening, are now on the defensive. And these hardline voices are sort of reaping maximum ideological benefit by saying, see, we told you so. We don't need human rights in Iran. We don't need democracy in Iran. We don't need freedom of the press in Iran. We don't need minority rights in Iran. We need to focus on what really matters, standing up to the great imperial power that is trying to subvert our independence, trying to collapse our economy, and trying to sort of uh, turn us into a vassal state the way that Iran was ruled prior to 1979. So in, in other words, the hardliners in Iran love Trump. Hardliners in Iran love Trump. In fact, you know, there was this very famous uh, statement that the former hawkish hardline president in Iran made um, prior to 2008 when um, Barack Obama had announced his candidacy. He goes, you know, Barack Obama will never get elected. If you look at the internal debate within Iran, they always prefer a hardline American president because it's the hardline rhetoric of regime change, of uh, crippling sanctions that actually reinforces the hardline rhetoric within Iran. This is sort of the, the process of what's called, you know, the mutual reinforcement effect that hardliners 
in Iran and in the United States have over each other. They both play off each other's rhetoric, and of course they isolate those voices that are in favor of diplomacy, in favor of negotiations, in favor of democratization. So I, mean, I would argue that uh, all of this claim that you know Iran is being weakened and Iran is sort of suffering because of these sanctions, it's actually the exact opposite. The regime is being strengthened in Iran because of Trump's policies, not weakened. You say that there's a strengthening in groups of people and they're coming together against America, but the youth of Iran is, quote-unquote, more westernized. They tend to enjoy things that Western cultures enjoy. How do you see their reaction to all of this, never really having gone through the issues that you're talking about in the past, just hearing about them from their elders and stuff? How do you think they're melding with the regime in control right now? Well, I think young people, people in Iran who support democratic change, who are very critical of the current regime, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They're caught, on the one hand, between an authoritarian regime that is deeply repressive and has become more repressive in recent months, on the one hand, and they're also being pressed on the outside by Donald Trump and these crippling sanctions. So these young people that you mentioned, you're absolutely right. You know, the vast majority of Iranians are under the age of 35. They have no memory or lived experience of life before the revolution. But at the same time, they're still Iranians. They still have a sense of their own history. Um, they don't want to turn their country into a vassal state to be another puppet of a great power. They want to have a country where they can live in dignity and they can have their own independence, but they can have you know, good relations. And they also, I think, these young people overwhelmingly want democracy and human rights. So they, I think, are the biggest victims and losers in this current scenario because the people who are being affected by these crippling sanctions, it's not the Supreme Leader, not the Revolutionary Guard Corps, not the ruling elite, it's the average citizen. The average citizen who has no voice over the policies of the Islamic Republic, but are suffering the most from these sanctions. So they're very much in a state of deep despair. You know, if you talk to them, um, anyone who can is trying to flee. It's really a question of survival right now because of the economic collapse of the economy. Um, and so they're really in a very difficult uh, and dire situation, which is why, you know, if you follow the debate, as I do in Iran, that some of the most passionate and uh, prominent voices in support of the Iran nuclear agreement and in support of Obama's policies where young people, people in the human rights community, people in the reformist camp in Iran, because they thought that this nuclear agreement would be an important step forward in de-escalating tension, removing the threat of war, allowing Iranians to sort of reconstitute um, some sort of meaningful economic life, which then might lead to greater political openings down the road. So the young people that you speak about are in deep despair, deep disillusionment, deep frustration. Uh, it's a very, it's a, it's a very desperate situation for them. They, they have the opportunity to vote for like a president, like, but he really has no power or anything like that. Where do they actually see this going as far as like finally getting some power to actually make some changes in the country? Well, let's just be clear: the current president is is Hassan Rouhani. But you're right in terms of Iran has elections, but these elections are not free elections in the sense that there is an open opportunity for candidates to run for office and then get elected. There are elections that are heavily censored by this guardian council that screens candidates for their ideological loyalty to the system. So you have elections in Iran, but they're elections that will not lead to the type of democratic change that we would expect in other countries, where if you have a new president or a parliament, that would lead to a shift in policy. So young people are frustrated. I mean, this is one of the problems that a lot of young people in Iran put their hopes in Hassan Rouhani, the current sort of reformist president, hoping that he would bring about political change. 
And his plan was that, you know, if he gets elected, he will try and do what's most important for most Iranians at that time in 2013. He was first elected. He said that if I get elected, I will try and resolve this nuclear question, which he did. He got, he got the agreement. He signed the agreement. But then the economic benefits that Iranians were promised never really, you know, materialized. And then Trump got elected and he tore up the agreement. Sanctions were placed. So Iranians are frustrated because, you know, they don't see any hope. Right? The internal political mechanisms in Iran, where you can elect someone that can bring about the type of political change that most young people want, are very restricted and very limited. And now you have this external pressure coming from the outside, which is you know, affecting people's daily lives. You know, the economy effectively has collapsed. So you have massive inflation, unemployment, all the rest of it. So young people really have no hope. You know? I mean, what fundamentally what has to happen in Iran is there has to be a new sort of strategy for democratization that tries to work outside of the existing political system where elections are carefully managed. There has to be some sort of you know, massive civil disobedience campaign the likes of which we've recently seen, if you're following the story, in Sudan and Algeria, where masses of people just turn out and nonviolently protest, demanding political change and demanding a removal of the, the, the senior you know, uh, members of the ruling elite and calling for it. I mean, that's the type of thing that has to happen. It hasn't happened yet for reasons that we can discuss, but uh, that's why there's so much despair and so much frustration, that there seems to be no internal mechanism within Iran that can bring about political change. And the external environment is one that is suggesting that you know there's going to be a war and if war happens then you know it's anyone's guess you know what might happen i think the big fear in terms of iran is that if there is a war then you know you could start to see what's called the balkanization of iran the breakup of the country massive refugee flows loss of life on an enormous scale i mean we don't know the details but those are the sort of some of the very real realistic scenarios in other words we could see iran turning into another iraq or syria or afghanistan which would then be catastrophic, not just for Iran and the people in Iran, but obviously for the entire region, and I would argue even for the entire world. I like that you went down the path of what could happen if we go to war with them and everything like that, because I kind of wanted to ask you what would happen down that path, and then what do you see as a possibility as a path to get to peace with them? Well, I mean, we don't know what the likely scenarios are with respect to war, because it's anyone's guess, but what is certain is that if there is some sort of military strike by the United States on Iran, then Iran is going to retaliate. And that would then lead to a very quick escalation. And Iran has a lot of cards that it could play in terms of attacking American assets, not just in the Persian Gulf area, but across the region, American troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, broadly. You would tar- and then there would be a, a demand for the United States to respond to that type of Iranian attack. There's the question of the Israel-Palestine conflict and what Hezbollah might do if there's any sort of Israeli involvement in a military attack on Iran. So those are all scenarios. And of course, so, um, so the obvious point to just remind your, your listeners is that we're looking at a Middle East that is deeply destabilized, deeply in turmoil. You know, a lot of countries that have collapsed, failed states, economic catastrophe. So on top of this deeply destabilized Middle East and many destabilized states, Yemen, Iraq, Syria, etc., we're going to add another war on top of this? I mean, if you just think about what that means, it eventually would, I think, make the war in Iraq, the 2003 war in Iraq, look like a picnic in comparison. Iran is a much more stronger state. They have more cards to play. So it's really, in many ways, a catastrophic scenario if we think about the, the possibilities of what might happen. 
Uh, the picnic reference is interesting. I think <laughs> I've heard Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard uh, make the very same comment uh, on Fox News, which was interesting to see, you know, conservative media outlet actually talking about the repercussions. I have two questions that deal with the regional repercussions of a potential war in Iran. We'll start with the first one, and that would be Saudi Arabia. I've heard a lot of people, scholars say, well, this is a lot more about preventing Saudi Arabia from having a nuclear uh, arsenal than actually Iran. Can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Saudi-Iranian conflict and how it you know, plays into this? Well, yeah, I think Saudi Arabia, along with the United Arab Emirates and the state of Israel, are the three biggest uh, supporters of war with Iran. If you listen to the rhetoric of these three governments, they uh, and for different reasons. In terms of the Saudi Arabia motive here, I think this new Saudi crown prince, who I um, refer to as the talented Mr. Bonesaw for his role in the <laughs> Khashoggi murder and his mayhem uh, that he has unleashed throughout the region, he is of the view that with Donald Trump in power, there's a ripe opportunity to try and deal with this regional problem that Iran has presented for Saudi Arabia. And this is a problem between Saudi Arabia and Iran that does not go back, as you sometimes hear in the media, to the 7th century. It's really a conflict between uh, the two countries that goes back 40 years to the 1979 revolution. 1979 revolution is a revolutionary moment for the people of the Middle East, and Saudi Arabia feared that the revolutionary wave of political Islam in Iran would come across the Persian Gulf and topple pro-Western monarchies in the same ways that it did in Iran. So Saudi Arabia has deep animosities toward Iran, largely for that reason. And it has been in a state of anxiety and a state of tension with Iran. And there's been a regional battle for power and influence throughout the Middle East between these two countries. Now Saudi Arabia, um, if you follow the story, they were deeply upset that President Obama negotiated a nuclear deal with Iran. They thought that was a disaster. They were actually fearful that, you know, that, that, that they were going to be replaced as America's closest ally in the Middle East after Israel, and that somehow Iran was going to you know, replace Saudi Arabia, which is complete fantasy if you know anything about uh, the topic. But that's how the Saudis were viewing this. And so when Trump got elected, the Saudis were so enthusiastic. They thought this is a great opportunity for us to do what we've always wanted to do, sort of have this um, much more aggressive policy toward Iran. But of course, with the United States playing lead, you know, United States launching this war with Saudi Arabia playing backup. And so they've been um, largely supportive of a war for those reasons. They feel that it would strengthen their position in the region. And the Emirates have a similar sort of view of the situation. Um, so that's, I think, fundamentally what's driving the Saudi you know, position. And there's a close, deep alliance, I would say, a very sordid and toxic alliance between the Trump administration and Saudi Arabia. You know, the first country that Donald Trump visits after he gets elected is Saudi Arabia. And there was that grand sort of, you know, festive jamboree that the Saudis threw for, for Trump. And, and there's this, you know, very close and intimate relationship between these two, you know, very toxic and notorious figures the Saudi Crown Prince, MBS, and Jared Kushner, who, you know, reportedly are frequently in contact and have this plan for rewriting the political map of the Middle East, which includes somehow containing or rolling back Iran, but also rewriting the or resolving the Israel-Palestine conflict in ways that are deeply um, disadvantageous to the Palestinians and, and sort of broader sort of plans. So this is, I think, one of the important developments that I think it explains why we are in this moment of crisis. It's, it's not just Trump 
and his you know idiosyncrasies it's not just trump and his close foreign policy advisors who are war hawks neoconservatives it's also the strong support that the trump administration is getting from saudi arabia the emirates and israel that are providing a lot of the support the sustenance the encouragement to sort of go down this path and i don't think you can understand what's happening today unless you 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 factor in those those elements my second question about sort of regional outcomes of a potential war would be on, on a Christian angle. And I mention this because the war hawks in the Trump administration, in rhetoric, right, they, they are all about protecting Christian rights in the Middle East, right? They're, Except Palestinian uh, Christian lives. <laughs> yes, and others uh, too. Um, so if you were, yeah, to ask them, you know, they'll probably try to twist potential war from some kind of a pro-Christian angle. So Iran has only one Christian neighbor, which also happens to be the uh, the only, you know, Christian country, uh, you know, bordering the Middle East. What would a war against Iran, what repercussions would that war against Iran have for Iran's only Christian neighbor, Armenia? Well, I think the most likely repercussion would be that there would be you know, massive destabilization of Iran and refugee flows, and people try to flee to the safest border that they can get to, perhaps Armenia, which is, you know, stable compared to other countries that border Iran. So that would be one consequence. It would, I think, you know, destabilize uh, other neighboring countries for similar reasons if you had these massive sort of, you know, loss of life and then people fleeing to, to borders. So I think that would be one immediate consequence. The other immediate consequence would be, you know, what it would mean for Iran's religious minorities, mm-hmm. Armenians, Jews, uh, Zoroastrians, and others who, you know, are not living in an ideal situation. But I think one of the lessons of Iraq that we learn is as bad as a, an authoritarian regime can be, mm. things can get a lot worse. Syria, too. Syria, too, if the country collapses, right? So, like, the Ba'athist regime in Iraq and Syria were in no ways, you know, in no way do I want to say anything positive about those repressive, bloodthirsty dictatorships. But what we see as a result of the collapse of those states and the coming uh, and war being unleashed is that the precarious situation that minorities are already living in can get a million times worse if if there's no you know safety and security in the country so i think that would be one of the consequences mm. that my, my religious minorities are weak they're vulnerable they don't have sort of protection and they would probably be subject be subject mm. to sort of persecution or just you know they would want to flee for safety to wherever they can go so as bad as the situation is in iran today with respect to religious minorities let's be honest and clear it can get a lot worse if there is some sort of collapse of the state and we see a replay of what's happened in Iraq and Syria taking mm. place in Iran. So that would be, I think, a very realistic sort of cause for concern. And and just to add from what I've been hearing uh, from my friends and family in Armenia, I was born there, there is a real concern about the existential future of the country of Armenia if Iran were to collapse because Armenia is already landlocked and blockaded on most sides by Turkey and Azerbaijan. And if Iran were to collapse, probably, you know, there would be another Turkic land state created south of Armenia. And and countries that, you know, deny the Armenian genocide at the same time threatening to repeat it again. And a lot of people fear that, you know, if, if things were to change in that region, this could be not just uh, catastrophic for Iran, but have very, very serious repercussions on the survival of, of others in the region. That's a good point. I mean, of course... Most people don't know that Iran has a border with Armenia, 
most people don't even know where Armenia is. But I mean, it's it's good that you point that out because there are these you know unintended consequences that can flow from a war with Iran that could infect. I mean, it's the ripple effect, right? I mean, people mostly talk about the global economy, what this would mean for you know refugee flows, what it mean for other countries in the region that are bordering with Iran. But in the case of Armenia, absolutely, I. Um, I haven't thought about the repercussions for Armenia, but that makes perfect sense to me that it could sort of make uh, an already precarious situation a lot worse were, were there to be a collapse of the state in Iran. Do you have any more questions? Well, there's one question that we haven't addressed. You asked okay, me before yeah. is the question of, you know, how do we get out of this situation, the prospects for peace? What are the yeah. way forward? I talked Making about... Making it to peace, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think I mentioned just a moment ago, I, I don't think we should put our put a lot of hope in trying to change Trump's mind. I think for to try and do that, I think, is wishful thinking and a waste of time. I think for those people who are genuinely interested in trying to sort of um, avert a war with Iran, I would encourage them to try and support those members of Congress that are trying to put constraints on the ability of Trump to launch a war. But I think much more importantly, the investment should be made in trying to support some political candidate in the forthcoming 2020 elections here, both at the congressional level and at the presidential level, to elect someone who has a much more sensible, decent, and coherent U.S. foreign policy that could then, you know, bring about some sort of meaningful realignment and reorientation of American foreign policy, not just with respect to Iran, but toward the entire world. I think that's the much better investment. I know that's not the answer that a lot of people want to hear because people are frustrated and they're understandably worried about what might happen next week, next month, if a war happens. You know, unfortunately, the president is in charge. He does have the authority to, you know, launch a war without congressional approval. And so there's not much that can be done. But I think there's a lot that can be done if we elect a much more sensible candidate in the next presidential election. And that would then demand, I think, for those of us who are concerned about this topic, to put the question of U.S. foreign policy, not just toward Iran, not just toward the Middle East, but U.S. foreign policy more generally, on the agenda for this coming uh, election cycle. It really hasn't been part of the debate up until now. Mostly the, you know, the, particularly the presidential debate has been about domestic issues. But I think this issue um, of U.S.-Iran policy should be, you know, put before these candidates. If you are elected, you know, Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, what exactly do you propose to do about this particular problem? How will you uh, uh, shift U.S. policy from what we have now to something better? What are the details? What's your vision? I think that's something that would be a contribution. Other than that, I can't think of anything, you know, more constructive than I could offer for those people who are as, cur- cons- as concerned as I am about the prospects of a coming war. Are there any local events or organizations here in Denver and Colorado, you know, where people can, can join or attend? You know, there, I, I'm getting a lot of emails of people who are also following this issue and they're saying, look, we have to organize some sort of, you know, series of public events to invite people who are elected officials or hope to become elected officials, bring them to these public forums and ask them tough questions. Not that I know of specifically, one, because we're in the summer month. I, 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 I would like to mention to your listeners just as a way of selfishly promoting our university and, and the School of International Studies that we do have at our Center for Middle East Studies a very uh, ambitious lecture series, series of events that are really geared toward, you know, um, dealing with contemporary issues that are open to the public. 
And so anyone who wants to find out about what our center is doing, you can just go on our website and, and get on our mailing list. Uh, we will be having a series of you know events, debates, forums, dealing with um, what's happening in the Middle East today. So that's one area. Do you, do you have the web address that you can tell Yeah, us? I mean, the best way to do it is just Google Center for Middle East Studies, okay. University of Denver. You'll get our website. And on the main page, there's a... Um, there's a, a way you can add, be added to our mailing list. We're also on Facebook. You can follow us that way. So there'll be a lot of events. I know, you know there's various peace groups and church groups that are trying to organize some programs around this topic. Nothing specific that I can share with you, but I know those things are you know, in the development stage. Perfect. Yeah, I think we, we have plenty of time. We're about 40 minutes now, so we can call it that unless you have anything else you want to add to this conversation because I think you've done a great job of explaining it. Well, you know, thanks for the opportunity. I mean, there's a lot to say in terms of this particular, you know, topic. I, I guess I would just like to, you know, reemphasize that, you know, Iran has been a thorn in the side of the United States for the last 40 years, largely because of uh, the revolution that took place and the political orientation of the regime in question. Um, I don't think there is any ultimate solution to the problem that Iran poses for the United States unless there is some meaningful and substantive political change within Iran, which is another way of saying until there is a serious transition to democracy in Iran, Iran will still be a, a cause for concern for U.S. foreign policy. And given that reality, then I think you know part of the debate here in the United States with respect to U.S. foreign policy in Iran should keep that reality in, in mind, that the only way to, I think, deal with the problem of Iran is to try and be much more mindful of the internal struggle for democracy in Iran and how U.S. foreign policy over the last 40 years has inadvertently actually undermined that struggle. And as we're seeing right now with Trump's policy, it's actually strengthening hardliners, strengthening the Republican Guard Corps, strengthening those elements. It's not helping democratic forces and human rights groups in Iran. So I'd like to see, you know, in uh, a new U.S. foreign policy that hopefully will emerge when President Sanders is in office, something that acknowledges that sort of internal struggle for democracy and having a U.S. foreign policy that is very much calibrated to take that reality into consideration. I would also mention, you know, now that you've prodded me, that I think the United States of America has a unique moral responsibility to support the struggle for democracy in Iran. Among all the countries in the world, I think one can make the case that American taxpayers, American citizens, owe the people of Iran their support for their democratic aspirations. Why? Because in 1953, in the coup d'etat that I mentioned, U.S. intervention undermined Iran's best chance of becoming a democracy. I mean, if you look at the issues at that time, it looked like the forces for democracy in Iran had a good chance of winning. Uh, they were strong, they were popular. We don't know whether that would have happened, but I think you know one can make a case that that, that was a moment of uh, democratization that had it uh, been allowed to stay, its, stay in power and proceed down the trajectory of democratization, you know, Iran might have been, might have emerged as a major democracy in the heart of the Middle East. Ask yourself how different might the Middle East be today had Iran been allowed to democratize, and then that being somewhat of a, a model for the rest of the region, how different might the entire Islamic world be today if there was a country in the heart of uh, the Middle East and the broader Islamic world that was democratic? We don't know the answer to that. And the reason why we don't know the answer to that is because the United States intervened in the early days of the Cold War for reasons that we can get into to subvert the democratic process, to bring back 
the dictator, to support that dictator, and to effectively create a situation that produced the 1979 revolution. So I think from that perspective, you know, from the perspective of historical wrongs and injustices, one can make the case that you know, Iran is not just one country out there where the United States has sort of a difficult relationship with. Our intervention in Iran in 1953 significantly altered the political tra trajectory of that country. And we know that the United States intervened in 1953 because, number one, the, the, the documentary record is you know, massive. But also, you know, the person who founded the school that we're sitting in, I mean, this school is named the Joseph Corbell School of International Affairs. Joseph Corbell was the father of Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State. And when Madeleine Albright was in office in the year 2000 in a diplomatic outreach to Iran, she publicly apologized for the 1953 coup, openly admitting that that intervention thwarted Iran's political development. It was a major recognition of that past historic wrong. So I think, you know, from that perspective of historical mistakes and the need to make historical amendments for past mistakes, one can make the case that, you know, we owe the Iranian people a lot because of past interventions at the United States. And now this is something that people are shocked at because the perspective is that we're the victims of Iranian aggression. But if you have any sense of history, I think one would have to appreciate the fact that there's a lot of legitimate grievances on the Iranian side, particularly with respect to the question of its democratic uh, potential that was you know, thwarted by that 1953 intervention, and it still acts as a cloud over this, this topic. So some of our listeners uh, might wonder, you know, why we did not discuss the attack on the U.S. embassy in Tehran during the revolution, and others may not know anything about it if you could briefly yeah. besides seeing that movie yeah yeah, yeah. besides <laughs> yeah, Argo? The, the Ben Argo, Affleck, yeah. The Affleck <laughs> movie um, yeah um, the beginning of that movie by the way which won the Academy Award there's a there's a short brief history sort of at the, at the start of it but it doesn't you know I think do justice to the troubled relationship I mean one of the things that happens in 1979 right after the revolution is that the American embassy in the United in, in Tehran is is taken over by a group of students who then hold the American diplomatic personnel there as hostage for the for 444 days and that actually was the was a major event in terms of I think shaping American political culture and orienting it in a very negative way toward Iran you know every night for a year and a half the question of these hostages was on the uh, front page of the newspaper and so those events I think were very much connected to the events that we have been talking about. You know, it's not like the Iranians just woke up one day or these students woke up one day and thought, well, we have nothing better to do. Let's go capture the American embassy. The American embassy at that time was viewed as an embassy that was deeply implicated in supporting the former dictatorial regime of the Shah. The, 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 the legacy of 1953 was very much, I think, shaping the political debate in Iran in 1979. And of course, the events that triggered the seizure of that embassy was the question of uh, the Shah of Iran, who fled the country during the revolution in 1979. And he flees, uh, and he's sort of wandering the world. And the Carter administration decides to allow him to come to the United States for medical reasons. But of course, in, on the Iranian side, this was viewed as an attempt by the United States to try to reorganize another coup d'etat, similar to the one that had taken place in 1953. So, it, I mean, the, the political temperature in Iran in 1979 after the revolution was incredibly explosive, incredibly angry toward the Shah, toward the Western support for the pro-Western monarchy. And so these series of events, you know, led to the seizure of that embassy. Unfortunately, you know, within Iran, there was an internal political dynamic that supported the seizure of that embassy 
and the taking of the American hostages because it allowed for you know hardline Islamists to settle scores and to consolidate power. And so Khomeini plays this up for his own internal reasons, effectively to try and uh, uh, diminish the popularity of uh, leftist forces, anti-imperialist forces, were also very anti-American, but were very powerful in Iran at that time. So that that's a key moment, you know. I think part of the way forward in terms of getting to a better relationship between these two countries is there would have to be also some formal apology on, on, from Iran, acknowledging that. And, and, you know, if you follow what's happening, a lot of those young students who seized the embassy as hot-headed radicals have now all grown up and matured and are basically reformists and Democrats now and are very sort of in favor of a reconciliation between the United States and Iran and have basically come close to apologizing for that event. So, I mean, there's a lot of grievances on both sides. I think part of the challenge of moving forward would have to be some acknowledgement of the grievances that both sides have and some sort of public apology and, and attempt to sort of bring about, bring about some sort of a new path uh, forward so that these countries can coexist. So if President Trump is listening, uh, which <laughs> I doubt, uh, I think you just got a, a roadmap to winning the Nobel Peace Prize because that's, yeah, he is dying, right, to, to get the prize. Yeah, but what, what's, what's the possibility of that ever happening, especially with Trump? Zero. Yeah. Zero. I mean, because, you know, I think Trump is, as we're seeing right now with his rhetoric and his, you know, his basically open bigotry and, 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 and his catering to his base, that he's not interested in any of the issues that we're concerned about. He's very much interested in, I think, trying to create a very chaotic scenario here in the United States, playing upon the worst instincts of people to get reelected. So, you know, I don't think he has a long-term strategy or vision. I'm willing to bet that he can't even identify Iran on the map. In fact, it's, it's actually a challenging question. I'll pose it to both of you since we're having a conversation. I ask this question to my students every year in my Intro to Middle East Politics class. I say, look, how many students in this you know, room, in this classroom, can identify the countries that border Iran? First question, what's the number and what are the countries? Do you know? How many countries border Iran? First question. I'm say there's, I want to say four or five. How many countries? I don't know the number. I can tell you the list. Okay, give me the list. Okay, so I'll start on the north. Okay. So Armenia, and then go to West Turkey, Iraq, and then you have the Gulf. So I don't know if you count the countries that are across the water. If they have a border, they have a border. Yeah, no border on the Gulf, so yeah. All right, so I need to list Saudi Arabia. Uh, not watch right. Saudi Arabia. No, because Iran and Saudi Arabia do not share a border. No, I'm talking about the, the land Gulf, border, right? Yeah. We're talking about land borders. Yeah. Okay, that's land even easier. Yeah, right. So I mentioned already three. Well, the question is, how many countries? Give me a number first. Well, I, I can count. So okay, I mentioned three, count. and then you have Azerbaijan, um, and then you have Turkmenistan, and then you have Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, is that seven? Uh, somewhere around there, I think. Is that seven? Actually, correct. Yeah. The number is uh, seven. It's actually, well, if you go, it's, I know it's, it's between Iraq and yeah. Uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, if you start I mean, in the north, it's, 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 it's Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Turkey, Iraq, and then you go around to Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then Turkmenistan, so it's seven. So, you know, uh, you know I don't think Trump is, has any sense of the geography of Iran, its history, its political culture. I think what's pretty evident, you know, he's pursuing a, a North Korea strategy here. I mean, he really, you know, thinks that if you pressure... Iran, in the same way that there was this pressure and rhetoric against North Korea, that then the the supreme leader will somehow capitulate and write these love letters, and Trump can sort of have a summit, and he can sort of bask in the glory of of, of, of that moment. Wait, I don't think there's so, anything bigger than that. So you're saying you think Trump thinks that everything's working out with Kim because of how strict we were before? 
I think so. I think I think the, 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 what we're seeing right now is very much a replay of the North Korea strategy. Recall at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was a, re, you know, a you know, fire and fury speech that, we, you know, threatening basically to annihilate North Korea, mm-hmm. calling them rocket man, you know, all of that rhetoric. And then there was this, you know, change in North Korea. North Korea basically sort of agrees to meet with Trump. And there's these two famous summits that take place, one in Singapore, one in Hanoi. And Trump loves the limelight. And of course, nothing is resolved with respect to the actual outstanding issues, but Trump gets all this media attention, right? But, but the difference between the countries is almost night and day. Like, yeah. North Korea is a crippled country with people that can barely feed themselves, whereas Iran is a much more powerful country with, like you said, more cards to play. Yeah, and, and in different regional contexts, oh, right? Yeah. I'm completely different. But I think, you know, look, Trump is not someone who reads books. He's not someone who's <laughs> known for his expertise in, you know, history or international affairs. Mm-hmm. He, he pursues uh, negotiations as if it's a real estate transaction mm-hmm. so you just act tough you threaten you storm out of the room and then you hope the other side will eventually capitulate but of course oh. you know that's not how you you know right. conduct and you find more, more pride in actually making deals with the people you know who you seem to hate the most exactly and then you sell and that actually, as you know a, with decent you know exactly I think that, that's that's <laughs> sort of i think part of the, the 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 hope that trump has that he can sort of claim that he did something that no one else could do i got to a better deal with iran but if you actually look at some of the debate in uh, Washington, D.C., the deal that Trump would probably like to strike with Iran on its nuclear program is almost identical to the terms of the deal that exists right now that he tore up. And the only reason why he tore up the deal was because it had Obama's name on it. So there's no strategy, there's no vision. He's basically taking us to war with Iran for his own personal ego reasons, you know, not because it's going to get us anywhere better, but because he simply thinks that, you know, his personal aura will be enhanced by effectively getting a nuclear deal that looks very similar to the one that exists, that what that did exist before the American, the United States tore up the one uh, that Obama signed. And that's it. You know, so there's no vision, there's no strategy. And I think that's why this is such a dangerous president. Do, do you think the regime in Iran is open to basically re-signing a similar deal? No, they're not, I think, for many reasons uh, that are poorly understood. One, they don't want to negotiate with a gun to their head because it shows that then they can be pushed around. There's also the legitimate question that why should we agree uh, to sign on to another nuclear deal with the United States when there was a deal in place and the Americans tore it up? So how do we know? And by you know, all means, they were following that. And they're following too. the deal. They, they, everyone agrees Iran adhere to uh, completely to the letter. So there's that question. But I think there's the other element that most people don't understand is that while negotiations between the United States and Iran here in the United States is somewhat controversial, in the Iranian side... U.S.-Iran relations is actually an existential question for the regime. The regime benefits, the hardliners, the supreme leaders in Iran benefits by playing up animosity and tensions with the United States, by claiming that the United States can't be trusted, the United States is always trying to uh, invade us, occupy us, subvert our independence. There is strong opposition in Iran toward any sort of dialogue or diplomatic negotiations because it helps the hardliners in the Islamic Republic consolidate their identity. But then the average citizen just suffers. Yeah, the average citizen suffers. The average citizen, this is why, you know, there is actually strong support in Iran among the population for relations with the United States, strong support in Iran among the reformist faction for relationship with the United States, but strong opposition among the hardliners who control the system to any sort of um, negotiation. So when you look at this question of U.S.-Iran relations, diplomacy, diplomatic relations, on the Iranian side, it's a much more complex picture because it deals with 
it, it points to very fundamental questions of authoritarian state control that is that revolves around anti-Americanism. I mean, one of the one of the there's three key pillars I would argue that the Islamic Republic of Iran is founded on. Um, one of them is this obsession with Baha'is, religious minority. One of them is a particular opposition to full gender equality, misogyny, if you will. And the other one is anti-Americanism. Mm. This anti-American animosity that has historical roots, but then is, I think, deliberately, deliberately manipulated by Iranian hardliners, is a source for regime survival in Iran, which is why I argue that that's all the more reason why the international community and the United States should try to constantly uh, reach out to Iran and call for diplomatic negotiations, because doing so makes it much more difficult for Iranian hardliners to say, keep saying, no, we don't want to have any relationship with the United States. It's too dangerous. That's why, you know, you know if you go back uh, and follow the debate, Barack Obama's election was actually, uh, how it played out in Iran was very interesting, because uh, the Iranian hardliners were actually baffled by the fact that there's this guy by the name of Barack Hossein Obama <laughs> who got elected, who has Muslim relatives. You know, that whole theme was deeply controversial here in the United States and you know a lot of supporters of the Democratic Party didn't want to talk about his middle name and his Muslim background uh, because it fed into you know Islamophobic themes here but in Iran there was actually this sort of you know this this sort of moment of surprise that someone who has the middle name Hussein which is a very popular name in Iran could get elected president and then who diplomatically and politically was issuing these statements that were very different from the Bush administration were calling for dialogue and reducing tensions that uh, you know threw a wrench in the plans of Iranian hardliners who wanted to portray the United States in the way that you know Trump is portraying the United States today in terms of its policies, a, a country that's trying to subvert Iran's independence. So I think you know if you if you look at the internal dynamic within Iran, there's an argument to be made that constantly trying to I think extend a friendly hand to Iran does help advance actually the struggle for political change because hardliners don't want to have that conversation. They don't want to deal with a United States that is friendly and open to dialogue. They want a United States that is threatening Iran and that is, you know, um, attacking Iran. So I think there, there's a whole side of this debate that has to do with internal Iranian politics that I think needs to be understood if you want to really understand why the prospects for diplomacy and negotiations right now are um, incredibly bleak because it's not just what's happening here in the United States with Trump and Bolton. It's also there's an Iranian side of the story that is part of the, the, the broader equation. So we can go ahead and wrap up with final thoughts. Uh, Simon, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I want to talk about FaceApp. <laughs> the, the one that ages you? Yeah, yeah the okay. one where, you know, basically your profile photo it ages by decades. And even the governor did that, <laughs> which was really funny. And I've seen some others. And then there was this panic if not hysteria about wait it was founded in russia so they must be stealing our identity i think it's a great idea to be concerned about sort of privacy and what corporations can gather about us but think of what facebook and instagram already know about us so uh, privacy concerns should not be limited to Russian linked companies. And actually I was very tempted to do the same thing. So I found the solution of finding an old smartphone that I don't use, getting it on a guest network, which does not connect to the rest of the Wi-Fi, and then maybe doing changing the faces of all of your relatives in one phone and sending it to them as opposed to just downloading. Yeah. But again, we should not just be concerned about Russian corporations collecting our information. I mean, Facebook knows more about us than anyone else. 
All right. So my final thought for the week is uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about a poll that came out recently for U.S. Senate and the people backing the poll who overwhelmingly supported a certain person who has not named herself as a candidate for U.S. Senate. Uh, she's currently the Secretary of State. You probably know who I'm talking about now. Yeah. Um, she has not come out as a candidate, but is towing a lot of lines on campaign finance issues. And I just wanted to make a statement about it. Um, my understanding was that secretaries of state are about running elections, not running for elections. Well, yeah, and she's trying to run for an election probably in an inappropriate way. Well, I think the funniest part, though, was they got the poll out and then the poll backfired because she didn't win it, even though they're trying to aim it in her direction. So, yeah, I think Andrew Romanoff was the winner of that poll, right? Yeah, as far as I know. Uh, well, Undecided was technically the winner, but as far sure. as like named candidates, it, w- it was Romanoff. Yeah. Okay. And if you want to close this up with whatever final thought you got. This coming election, I think, is the most important election, not just for this country, but for the world. And one of the things that we learn from the presidency of Donald Trump is how important a U.S. president can be for the entire world, not just in terms of you know, Middle East policy, but in terms of climate change, in terms of you know, the rise of right-wing populist movements around the world that have been um, bolstered and emboldened by what Donald Trump has been saying. So um, the point that I uh, would like to end with is that I think there are unique moral burdens that fall on the shoulders of American citizens that don't apply to citizens of other countries. Because for better or for worse, the United States of America is still the most powerful country in the world. What the United States does or doesn't do in many ways can make a huge difference in terms of whether people live or die or what type of you know, political or social conditions they live in. You know? So I think that realization that, that the United States you know, is the most powerful country in the world and has huge amounts of influence places unique moral burdens on Americans who have citizenship and who can cast a ballot and who can bring about the type of political change that I think is desperately needed desperately needed, not just for this country and many of the, many of the problems, but also internationally. Um, so I think that's something to worth, that's worth thinking about that I think most Americans perhaps aren't completely cognizant of, but I think that unique position that we find ourselves in as American citizens at this moment, in all of this chaos and uncertainty globally, does demand of all of us who can vote to really you know, take that right to vote very seriously and to take this forthcoming election very seriously and to to do the right thing. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us. Um, Let's go ahead and say goodbye. Bye. 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 Yeah, guns close doors to the system Yeah, fuck them when we say when I'm with them